Welcome to COVID-19, The Path Forward. I'm Jack Leslie, Chairman of Weber Shandwick and your host. Today, I'm joined by Carrie Adams, the Chief Executive Officer of the Union for International Cancer Control. The UICC is comprised of over 1,200 member organizations across 172 countries and represents the world's major cancer societies, health ministries, and patient groups in cancer prevention and control. Working closely with WHO and other UN organizations on behalf of its members, UICC's mission is to reduce the global cancer burden, promote greater equity in care, and ensure that cancer control continues to be a top global health priority. You may be familiar with the organization's efforts around World Cancer Day and convening other key events to support the global cancer community. Over the past decade, UICC and its member organizations and partners have played a critical role in capacity-building initiatives to strengthen the cancer community and driving change through global advocacy efforts. Directly relevant, of course, to cancer control are ongoing efforts to stop the global tobacco epidemic and help people understand the risks related to tobacco use. And in full transparency, Weber Shanwick has also made a pledge to do its part in curbing the influence of the tobacco industry. We do not work for the tobacco industry or tobacco products. It's been a long-standing policy of ours. So, Carrie, thanks for taking the time to join us today. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you know, we have so much to cover, and we're principally going to talk about the impact of COVID-19 pandemic. But before we get into that, I thought I'd just ask you a little bit about your background. I know in 2009, you made a pretty significant career change when you moved from international business and banking to become CEO of UICC. And I don't know whether you know, we, we had a podcast in this series uh, where I had a chance to talk to one of your colleagues, Peter Sands, who's the CEO of the Global Fund. And he also came out of banking. He was the CEO of Standard Chartered. So is there something in global health that's becoming a trend for bankers? I, I don't know if that's true, but I will say that working in banking for 23 years was a terrific learning experience. And, and uh, I certainly benefit by getting a great breadth of view, working internationally with different cultures, working in um, an organization that was very impact focused, certainly not in the health space, but it was nonetheless a lot of the training education, which I received as a, a young man in business and then as a CEO of many banks around the world. I think really can be transferred into a global health scenario and, and you can bring a different skill set to the already immensely talented and capable people who work in global health. Peter said sort of the same thing and is also obviously making a big impact at the, at the Global Fund. What got you interested first in, in global health? It was a, a really long transition, really. I, I think probably around the end of the 1990s, I was reflecting on whether I wanted to continue my career in banking. I, I love working for the bank that I was employed by, which was Lloyds Bank. I love the people, and it certainly gave me a lot of opportunities to experience new businesses and learn new things. But I, I, I had a feeling inside that I wanted to do something else in a, in a second career after banking. So I, I did my my master's in business administration and that that sort of opened my eyes up to the world that was out there and then very fortunately I was sponsored to go to Harvard Business School which I interacted with tremendous people from all around the world absolute leaders and drivers change makers and I guess after that it became just a matter of time before I was ready to move on now moving into global health I didn't really know that I would move into global health I thought that I would move into 
an NGO scenario. I'd become very interested in the charitable sector, not least when I ran the private banks, when I met incredible individuals who, through their wealth, were doing some amazing things like building eye hospitals in India and creating orphanages in Russia and children's girls' schools in Bangladesh and all sorts of things. And I actually found that when I was talking to them about their investment portfolio, I'd, I found them talking about their charitable interests far more interesting. And so I think when, when I made the break and the bank and I shook hands and said au revoir, I started looking around and I saw this role I've been touched by cancer through my family and lost friends to it. And immediately I finished the two pages. I knew I wanted to get the role. And very fortunately, the board of UICC was open to the idea of a, a non-oncologist coming in to lead the organisation. So a series of fortuitous incidents, which actually led me to be where I am today. And I can see why that kind of broad background is so important in an organisation that represents 1,200 member organisations worldwide. You also are former chairman of the NCD Alliance, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. That's, of course, non-communicable diseases. And before the pandemic, this was really gathering a lot of steam, you know, and global health, so much of the resources have been recent years been devoted to communicable diseases, to HIV AIDS, of course, and tuberculosis and polio. And of course, as you're going to tell us, these non-communicable diseases like heart disease or diabetes or cancer are in low and middle income countries, just as they are in high income countries, the leading causes of death. So, you know, we had then the pandemic hit and we haven't heard as much about because of the focus on COVID about fighting NCDs. Where does that stand now? And how do you think since we were, we're not out of the pandemic by any means, but we're certainly on the perhaps on the other side of the curve in Europe and the U.S., are we going to come back to that discussion, do you think? And, you know, okay. I was there at the beginning of the NCD Alliance back 11 years ago. It's one of the first things I got involved with where we collectively, as a, a, series, a group of diseases, although run through different federations, decided that the collective action by bringing together diabetes, heart disease, and the federations around that and lung disease, we could assist WHO in placing the NCD crisis on the global agenda. Because as you quite rightly said, during the early part of the century, the communicable diseases, to some extent, quite rightly played a lead role in the UN commitments to addressing a health issue. And there'd only been one health high-level meeting, which was in 2000 on HIV AIDS. And then from that, um, the MDGs included communicable diseases, but but at the absence was the NCDs. And so the first set of work that we did with UIC working in partnership with that group was to ask member states, countries around the world to hold a series of high level meetings to raise the profile of, on a set of diseases which were not only unfortunately killing more people than any other diseases, but secondly, if you look to the forecast with growing populations that are aging, you can see that NCDs would become the dominant issue, not just in high income countries, but also in low and middle income countries. So I think that energy and enthusiasm grew over a 10 year period. It didn't happen quickly. Now, I believe that that energy and commitment continues and we, we have to be realistic. You know, we've gone through, what is it now, 18 months of COVID. And I think, you know, quite rightly, most governments very much focused on addressing a pandemic, which, you know, has been awful and many lives have been lost. And it has been addressed as best people have, given the knowledge that we've had about the disease and the way to deal with it on a country by country basis. And we're not through it yet. But there has been some outcomes for cancer and the NCDs, which mean that we do face a bit of a challenging time because during that last 18 months, what we have seen is that the number of cases presented, number of cancers identified, 
has reduced because of a lack of screening, because people have hesitancy going into the health system. And some countries have reported 70 to 80% of breast cancer patients been presented have not been identified. There's a drop of 70-80%. So we really face quite a challenge of catch-up. And I think governments are aware of that. Many governments are including the catch-up on NCDs within their own COVID recovery plans. And I'm optimistic that some of the long-term benefits of this situation, although you know it's been a dark cloud, but there are some silver linings, is that we've had really, for the first time, an example of what we've been saying for years, which is that health is a whole-of-government issue. It cannot sit tightly within the health ministry. It affects the whole of the government. We've said that investment in health is a good investment. If it avoids cost in the future. We've said that we need to have healthier societies, avoiding tobacco use, obesity, etc., etc. And I think what's played out through COVID is a lot of learning at government level about the importance of investing in a healthy society and to be efficient and effective in delivering treatment and care to those that need it at an earlier stage. So I think we have a challenge to catch up, and I think that's recognised by the majority of governments. But I also believe we have a, a challenge to learn. And through that learning, I hope that NCDs will continue to be a major issue, not just within the health ministry, but across the whole of government. Yeah, you know, I want to come back to a number of those issues you just raised, principally falling behind in areas like screening and, and treatment for cancer. But I thought I'd have you kind of talk to us a little bit more about the last point you made, which is what governments have learned as a result of this pandemic. Certainly, they've seen the inequities in care, and that's playing out now, I think, in access to vaccines. Are you seeing changes that governments are making either individually or, you know, we have uh, G7 taking place now? What kind of specific actions do you see governments taking that respond to those learnings? I think it's early to say that any government has actually taken specific actions. But I think that what we can see with the conversations that are taking place through our colleagues at WHO and with member states is that there has been, I think there's a lot of reflection about how they prioritise the balance between prevention and treatment and care and how they address some of the social determinants of health that lead to problems with NCDs in the future, which, according to the data and stuff from WHO, says that that's a good investment to avoid costs in the future. I can't pick out a country at the moment where I can say, look, they've learned everything and they're moving on. But what I can see is there's enough conversations going on that when they're preparing their recovery plans, they are considering how they integrate a more efficient and effective approach to NCDs in the future. If you want to avoid the, the stress and strain that we've had under this pandemic and future ones, actually a lot of the work you need to put into also helps avoid NCDs. Because we know, for example, that those people who have more likelihood of developing a cancer through exposure to risk factors are more likely to have a more severe reaction to a COVID virus. So I think that there's learning. I'm not sure that we've actually got any great examples at the moment, but there's time. I've worked long enough with governments to know that they, they can turn around quickly, but their focus has been very much on COVID. And now, hopefully, as those countries that are coming out of it with their vaccination programs in place, we can start having conversations about the catch up and then the things that need to be addressed that we've learned through the COVID pandemic. Yeah, certainly we saw terrific advances in research and development that led to an extraordinary quick development of these COVID-19 vaccines. But as you said, you know, it's also exposed this weakness in healthcare systems. 
even once you have the vaccines, you've got to get them in people's arms. And hopefully the international community is really working hard to, to try to address that. But as you say, it takes, you know, it takes time. I wanted to talk a little bit about the balance. You mentioned the balance between prevention and care. So I'm looking at something here that suggests that in the U.S., this was from JAMA Oncology, that we incurred a national screening deficit of 9.3 million people for breast, colorectal, and, and prostate cancer screening in 2020. I mean, obviously, that has just huge impact on care. What are we likely to see play out over the next two years you know, as a result of this period of time where we, we weren't doing the, the kind of screening we should have been? Well, we've got to catch up. Unfortunately, cancer is a time bomb. So the earlier we can catch most cancers, the, the more successful we can be with treatment. And that's actually true for all cancers. The screening cancellation and delays happen across all countries. I think in France, they saw a 25% drop in screenings and diagnostics. No, even some countries cancelled the screenings for a period of time. But are now looking at catch up by using mobile units to actually get out to the community because each month that passes, it means that now a person could move from stage one to stage two to stage three of their cancer. And at stage three, it becomes very complicated to address. So I think you were going to see people wanting to catch up. There'll be a demand from civil society. Our membership around the world will be pressing governments to do that catch up and to invest time, energy and funding into ensuring that people who suspect they may have a problem present themselves in a safe environment so they can be checked out. And also that any screening that has been cancelled or cut down in any way is refreshed and probably needs to be increased in order to get access to those people who are likely to have a cancer, whether it's breast cancer or it could be cervical cancer, whatever it may be. But can I go back to one of the points you made about prevention? As an NCD community, that prevention is really critical. And, and what we've actually had is a great opportunity as society to practice prevention. We've all been wearing yeah. our masks. We've all been doing our one and a half meters. We've all been conscious about hand washing. I mean, the number of normal flus, which have normally run around Switzerland where I live or UK where my family lives, that's all disappeared because people became more aware of the issue of prevention of and contracting COVID. And I wonder whether there'll be a societal benefit of that, where we will become more conscious of the impacts of our behavior on the likelihood of us being exposed to the potential to have a disease in the future. I think that's maybe a longer term consequence that we will be more health conscious as individuals and as families. I'm not suggesting that we will all walk around with masks for the rest of our life. I don't, don't think that. But it, it's the first time that the whole world has had the challenge of avoiding a disease and has actually worked very conscientiously to make sure that it isn't spread amongst our families and friends and our, and our workforces. So yeah. I think that may be an interesting consequence, the psychology of society and how we think about risk factors like tobacco, et cetera, et cetera, which we interested to see how it pans out over the next few years. Going back to screening and diagnosis side, in countries where we've got higher levels of vaccinations in the U.S. certainly or in Western Europe, are you starting to see a return to normalcy on the numbers? Yeah, anecdotally, yes. So in my conversations with, for example, people in Cancer Research UK, Macmillan in the UK and the American Cancer Society, you see that there is a pickup and we are seeing a return to some sort of normal world. So yes, 
But I mean, you know, you're, we're talking about societies where you know, there's a vaccination programs rolling out rapidly. So one would hope that part of that would be the availability of, of screenings. Interesting enough, another outcome of this pandemic, which we, we didn't expect at the beginning, where we thought we were just talking about, you no, know, do cancer patients have a more likelihood of having a severe reaction to COVID? That was the conversation the first three to four weeks. One of the outcomes that we investigated last year is what been the financial impacts on the civil, the NGO sector, the patient groups that perform a, a fundamental role in supporting patients through their journey in many countries, and often working with volunteers, often working with very little money, but and at the, sometimes performing the, the roles of screening, for example, on behalf of governments. And the, the numbers are quite staggering. We found that 50% of our membership around the world has seen a drop of their income last year between 25 to 75%. So that's sort of a, a hidden impact of COVID because the majority of those organisations raise money through gala dinners, through races, through walks, and of course that was stopped last right. year. We're very concerned that a lot of the patients in, in many countries who rely heavily on the support of patient groups will struggle this year as yeah. a result of the economic consequences of that. Now, we've seen some brilliant innovations, people using the telephone, people using Zoom and doing support in that way, and apps have been developed, etc. But it is another consequence, which is probably not high on people's minds, the financial consequences on the health systems outside of the government's own or the private health system, but the civil society system, which is so important to support um, patients and their families through those journeys. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We've, we've seen that as well. Back on the positive side of the ledger, though, in terms of things we've seen happen, one of them is the rise in telehealth, which I would imagine plays a real role, you know, in oncology as another means of getting screenings. Is telehealth here to stay? Is that going to play an even greater role? Absolutely. And I think many organizations like my own will be zoomed for the foreseeable future. It's, it's opened up our eyes about what we can do to support patients, to do advocacy, to bring people together and moved us away from that mindset that's got to be face-to-face. And I know many organizations are now delivering training and education online around the world, addressing the inequity of knowledge. One of our partners, a group called Project Echo, did a terrific job. Their platform has been expanded rapidly over the last 12 months to deliver oncology training, nursing training, all sorts of trains, bringing expert hubs together to work with individuals in low- and middle-income countries that can't get access to that training. So, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a sea change in the way that we deliver support around the world using the, the virtual platforms which have emerged so rapidly in the last 12 to 15 months. It's certainly advanced progress in so many areas. We've got so many things to talk about, time still being by, but one of the other areas I'd love you to comment on is the impact of the pandemic on the clinical trial process for the cancer community. How has it impacted things there? Exactly the same as everything else, unfortunately. The, the trial process has been challenged and it's been difficult to get people to, t- to sign up to trials as well. I mean, this is a personal opinion. I don't see it as being as critical as cancellation of screenings. I, I think we can get back into the, the trial model and get people signed up and get those trials running quickly. So there's been a delay, obviously, maybe moving through the, the trial process. As difficult as it is for people who are looking at those drugs to be potentially the, the last hope, very difficult. The mass screening has been cancelled. has caused, I believe, a real backlog in terms of the number of cancers that will be missed and then will be presented too late. So there's not one aspect of the cancer spectrum of uh, treatment and care 
diagnosis and screening which hasn't been impacted by the COVID pandemic. I think what I've always admired about the cancer community is how resilient it is, how innovative it is, how passionate it is about the individuals affected by cancer. And certainly through our membership, I think that we will be able to catch up quickly in those areas and hopefully we can get trial levels back to the levels they were before. Yeah, we were obviously had a great deal of momentum behind R&D and in cancer before the pandemic. Interestingly enough, as you well know, President Biden was very active in this in large part because he lost his son from from cancer. I have not looked at the new budget proposals, and maybe this is getting too much in the weeds, but I'm just curious, maybe at a higher level, are because of the focus on pandemic preparedness for future, are we finding that global health dollars are going more there and either less or not increasing in R&D for NCDs or for cancer? I'm on the positive side of this one. I think that we will see as an outcome that there'll be more dollars on health. And if those dollars go to the right place, they will go to NCDs because that's the the largest burden you're going to see in the next decade or so. I'm hopeful that governments will allocate more percentage GDP to health and NCDs and cancers to flow from that. I'm also hopeful that despite the challenges, the recent announcements by the UK, that the importance of investing in health abroad through overseas development assistance will be accelerated because it's, you know, what we've learned through this is that the health of the world affects everyone. So we need to invest outside of our own borders in order to protect everyone within our borders. So I think that there may be a, a rethinking and we mentioned the G7 meeting going ahead. I know they're going to make some big announcements about commitments to COVID vaccinations around the world, hopefully. But I hope that you know, an outcome of this is that the health budgets in most governments will increase because they have to, and they'll increase because they need to get to a level which gives people within their own society the chance to live healthily and also to when they do have an illness to be treated well. That's sort of embedded in a lot of the global commitments on universal health coverage. So if we continue with that, which was you now being discussed and debated at various UN meetings and the World Health Assemblies, if we continue with that approach, which says that people should have access to basic treatment and care wherever they are without financial catastrophe, one would hope that the learning through COVID will push governments to say this is something that we really need to take a bit more seriously. I was aware of Biden's commitment because of his family loss, and it's a pleasure having him making those statements. He was a supporter on World Council Day as well. So let's hope that that leadership can be reflected in the decisions of others around the world. One of the other findings through the pandemic, and even in the clinical trials, is the disparities that exist, inequities. Talk to us a little bit about those disparities in in global cancer and how we're addressing them. Yeah, that's a a massive challenge across all health issues, but is a, a really large challenge for cancer. Cancer is a complicated disease to treat, and therefore it's an investment governments have to really prepare for and understand. Our ambition over the last decade is to get countries to place cancer in their own health agenda and to formulate a national cancer control plan. Once you have a plan in place, then that sort of triggers a whole set of consequences in the country because it will trigger, for example, the need to have cancer registries so that you truly understand what your cancer burden is in your country. It can also trigger an approach to some of the risk factors which are causing cancer, and it certainly raises the profile of the disease across the government. So we monitor national cancer control plans. We 
encourage governments to write them. We've seen a significant increase in the number of governments that have national council control plans. And that's sort of a barometer of change on whether a country is ready to actually address the cancer burden it's facing. Once that plan's in place, and of course there's access to an awful lot of international help, which can address some of those challenges in those countries where there is no health infrastructure, there's no maybe cancer treatment centres, there isn't a radiotherapy machine, etc. And that's part of our mission statement is to bring international players together so we can collectively help those countries address the major cancers which they face and which they will face in future as their population ages. So always pivot around the National Cancer Control Plan being the almost the, the contract, the agreement, the understanding about the government recognises it and we are going to help you to address that. Now, there are other yeah. issues where there's massive inequities and, of course, that's the availability of, of drugs, of medicines, uh, radiotherapy, et cetera, et cetera. And we're working constantly with different partners to address that. In fact, you know, in the past, we've actually launched new organisations to work with, for example, cities in low-middle-income countries to bring international expertise so they can understand their cancer burden and then work collectively with the international community to address it. You know, we can do a lot to assist, but we do need national governments to recognise in the first instance that they have a cancer challenge and they're willing to invest themselves. That sort of opens the doors to a lot of opportunity. Well, we're coming up on the half hour. I'd like, I always like to sort of end these by asking our guests what they see as the biggest lessons learned from the pandemic. You already hit a few of them. I asked that question of Chris Elias, who you might know, he's at the Gates Foundation. He was succinct. He said, science overperformed and leadership underperformed. Is there a bigger lesson in all of this for you? I think the biggest lesson is that you know, we, as a society, I think we will become more sensitive to the, the issue of prevention and avoiding the risks of developing diseases. That's what I'm hopeful for. So let's just take, for example, cancer and tobacco. You know, we know 30% plus of all, all cancers are caused by the use of tobacco. I think we have an opportunity now to push as a cancer community right around the world for governments to take action, which will limit or restrict over time the number of people who wish to smoke. I think that this is something that we can follow up on. We can push and say, look, this action causes these diseases and this infrastructure needs to be put in place. So I would say my one liner would be, I hope that we've learned a lot about the value of prevention, because if we worked in that space continually for 10, 20 years, we would lower the number of cases of NCDs and cancers for future generations. Yeah, I think that's probably as good a place as any to end the importance of prevention. Thanks, Kerry, for taking so much time here. It's really been a fascinating conversation. I'm glad you could join us. It's a pleasure talking to you. For all of our listeners, they all know that this past year has been unlike any other. And while the focus has heavily been on COVID-19, of course, this conversation is a reminder of the greater impact that the pandemic has had in so many important areas. And this last lesson that preventive care must be prioritized. So to all of our listeners, till next time, stay safe and stay healthy.